This episode is sponsored by RSVP. RSVP brings together two established video playback companies into one powerhouse with over 50 years of onset knowledge. The experienced and growing team are all skilled in the latest recording software with up-to-date HD video recording equipment, HD monitors and HD wireless packages. RSVP understand that the requirements for every shoot are different. So for a tailor quote, get in touch at info at rsvp.london. Let's get started. Hola film family, I'm Isusko, your host, aka The Time Scheduler. Welcome to the Film Gods podcast, which is a chat with the best of the UK film crew who make all of those beautiful moving images you watch every day. I want to give a special thanks to Island Studios for the recording space. Thank you, Mark, Mitch, Pauline and the whole team. Wherever you're listening, hope you enjoy. Big love. So, hi film family. Today our special guest is in, back in, back in, round two. Um, We recorded last week, but seven days is a long time when you're kind of starting off and learning new things. So thank you for coming back and giving me another hour. Um, it is an absolute honour and a privilege. Um, so please tell the listeners who you are and what your role is on the course sheet. My name, hello, first Hi. of all. Uh, and thank you for having me in this excellent podcast of yours, uh, which I think is a great idea because I don't know of anything else um, similar to or addressing the issues that you're doing, which I think is a great benefit. So I'm very, very happy to be here. Thanks. Pleasure. Uh, my name is Matthew Clyde, Matt Clyde, otherwise known as, um, and my job title is First Assistant Director, and that is what is on the call sheet. Cool. And uh, so what does, that, what does that mean, and what, does that, what do you do on a film set? Uh, I, am, I run the floor for the director, so I'm the sort of project manager, sort of uh, factory floor manager... Um, kind of thing. So, in other words, my job is to be the voice of the director on set in terms of I'm the one that does the shoot schedule, uh, talks to every department and uh, makes sure that people know how the day is going to run, what is coming next and fill in all the gaps in between so the director doesn't have to worry about those things. So the director can just talk about the performance, figure out with wardrobe or styling what they're wearing, um, and also just get to the finer, nuanced um, communication with actors, the agency, the client, so that the running of the floor, the, the boring stuff, if you like, but the essential, the non-glamorous, the mechanics of the mm-hmm. shoot... Um, so that's what I take care of. And what would a typical job look like? How do you? How does it start? What do you do? And then how does it end? So um, my... I guess where, where do you normally? What what's your? Are you short form or long form? Short form, yep. exclusively commercials. I did um, think about uh, doing long form, but decided against it because. The good thing about commercials is that they're short. You're in and you're out um, most of the time. There are commercials that go on for 10, 15 days, um, but most of the time you're looking between two and four days for a commercial. So you're in and you're out. Um, It's a freelance lifestyle style even. You get booked on short projects. So the first phone call is to my, what they call the diary service. So they're not really an agent as such, but people call them to find out my availability. And um, so I then take the job. And at that point, I get sent the storyboards, the rough schedule that's been determined by the producer, and any other information about cast, location availability, etc., etc. So... That's my first entry point, is usually an email. And then from there, you're booked on a technical recce. So, um, so which means you turn up on your location or your studio 
And you have all the heads of department, whether it be a DOP, director of photography, or the production designer, the gaffer who will deal with all the lighting alongside with the DP, and any other specialist head of department. Mm -hmm. It could be a stunt coordinator, it could be a wire person who's dealing with wires, or a home economist, it could be anyone, but it's usually the heads of department. So we turn up, say, for example, on a location shoot, and we look at all the locations. Uh, so, in other words, my, my first entry point is really at the technical recce, mm-hmm. um, at which point you then determine from all the information that you discuss and go through on the tech recce, how then the shoot will evolve. So what, what are you, you talking about on the tech recce's? Uh, generally, we're talking about the logistics. Uh, it's it's multifaceted. So, primarily, you go through with the director on each single storyboard that they have um, for that location, and then you so you discuss what's happening in the scene. You then look at the timing of that, and usually your first port of call is light. Mm-hmm. So on a location specifically, um, it's about light availability. So you do that. And so then, the sun's in the right place just, for the shot. Exactly. You, okay. you know, usually somebody is backlit and it all looks beautiful and that's what we should aim for. Now then, that's, from my point of view, that's, that's the priority. Then you have to look at Okay, are there children? Mm-hmm. What time can the children arrive? Because we're, 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 we're given us a set of guidelines for working with children. Which, on a side note, is going to be its own separate podcast. <laughs> exactly. So listen I don't know out. why I changed the voice there. No, I got no, a little bit I closer like to it. the mic. But... Close mics. Um, not creepy at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then you, you look at light and then you look at all the other factors. Okay. Um, so location availability. If you're shooting in a residential street, sometimes you can't start before 7.30, 8 o'clock because mm-hmm. the residents are fed up with people banging trucks around and making noise. So you have to then determine from your list of essential things what takes priority and what therefore then guides how best to shoot. Mm-hmm. And what you're looking for primarily is time saving and how to get the most out of the time that you have with the resources that are available to you Mm -hmm. to maximise the shooting time for that scene. So then it becomes a careful balance of where you need to be, at what time, and how much pre-call, how much preparation time there needs to be in order to do the first shot or the first scene. So then you have to sort of work backwards from that, really. Um, Generally, in filmmaking, you start with a wide shot and then you go in close. Mm -hmm. Because whatever you do in the wide shot determines how you shoot the close-up. So Um, you learn. You learn from in the wide... You learn in the wide, you learn the blocking. You learn blocking being how people move around a set. You know, if um, someone's in the kitchen, so there's a boyfriend and girlfriend are in the kitchen around a breakfast bar, and then mum walks in from camera right, then you know that she's got to still walk in on camera right when you go from the close-up. Mm-hmm. If you start with a close-up, and you say, okay, mum's walking from camera right, and then you go to the wide, and then you work out that physically mum can't walk in from camera right, mm. then you have to then shoot that close-up again. So always start with the widest possible thing so you know the geography of the scene. Does, is that useful for any other department shooting wide as well? Yes. If, for example, you know, if someone's eating a sandwich, you know how many bites of the sandwich, you know at which point they've bitten the sandwich within the dialogue Mm -hmm. um, and you know where everything is placed. And in this world of commercials, the mise-en-scene, if you like, excuse me, uh, the the arrangement of the space is key because you have 30 seconds to tell a story. So every frame counts. Every, every, Every frame within that scene counts. So... 
from all sorts of reasons, from art directing-wise, from how the client and the agency and the director wants the space to feel determines, determines that scene. So you, you, you sign everything off, you make sure that you've got it all right for the wide shot, and then once you're in the close-up, actually you can cheat a lot of it, but you must start with the wide. Okay. So you've been confirmed on a job. Yeah. You've got all your boards and your information, storyboards, you've got your scripts... You've gone on the tech recce. What then comes next? The schedule. Okay. Determine the schedule. Write the schedule. How do you do a first draft of it? Uh, how do you do a first draft? Do you throw everything up in the air and see where it lands? Not true. You, from the tech recce, you work out your timings. I mean, you know, a good exercise is to divide the number of scenes by the hours you have in the day. Just first of all, right? So I've got 10 scenes. Uh, my maths is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we won't hold you to it. We've no. got X amount of scenes to achieve in this much time. Yeah. Okay, so we've got two hours per scene, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? The standard shooting day without incurring overtime is 10 hours plus one hour for lunch. So you've got 11 hours. So then you do your rough math and say, okay, how can we fit this all in within that amount of time? then it soon becomes apparent that more often than not, you can't, so that then you have to go, okay, so there's going to be two hours overtime a day, something like that. Mm-hmm. Then you think, okay, so how can I minimise that overtime? Because paying overtime on a small team, be it the art department, which is five people, or the electricians, which is another six people, maybe... We call them in early to get Mm -hmm. prepared and then the rest of the unit comes in. So it's all about minimising cost, actually, um, so that you know that you can get something done with... And if there is going to be an overage or overtime, you try and make that the least thicker possible because everybody has to work to a budget and that's why we're all here because um, it's a job, like Mm. any other. It's Mm -hmm. getting paid. It's working on a production line. I need X amount of packages done in this amount of time, and they've got to go out the door. Otherwise, the whole week's schedule is is screwed. So, much like anything else, it's about about minutes and seconds. And once those add up, you know, a 10-minute discussion about a particular scene... If you have six of those, which is quite easy, that's an hour. So you've mm-hmm. lost an hour and you know that, and you sort of figure that one out. You see, well, with the discussions, with everything like this, the reality is we've got 40 minutes to shoot X. Mm. So, and that's kind of where experience comes in, is because the more experience you are and the more you've seen it all, then the more you can mitigate against all those niggly bits that all add up to um, to time and time wasted um, so I've forgotten the original question is what's the next step the next step is to determine the schedule you determine the schedule on what time you can get into the location what time you need to shoot if you're working with children you've got to do it within specific hours uh, if you're working with animals you know you've got a finite amount of time with an animal uh, before they just don't do what you want them to do. Um, and then also you've got to realise if you're moving from one location to another, you have to factor that into the day uh, as the well. So a unit move is not mm-hmm. just, we'll just pick up the camera and go down no. the road. The trucks have to be packed up. You have to figure out if the caterers are going to do breakfast in one place mm-hmm. and they need to turn lunch around by, you know, within five hours where's the best place for the caterers to be? You know, all of that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. you want to minimise the effect that changing or moving has on the shooting day. So it's a puzzle, and that's the kind of joy of it, is figuring out the challenge. Um, and it's different on every occasion, and each each particular shooting scenario brings with it its own set of challenges. And for a, say for a, a first version on a schedule, how realistic are you for that first version? You know, if you think it goes till midnight, do you do you put down? I think this is going to go till midnight. Yeah, I, I would also I would always err on the side of caution, 
And there's two reasons for this. Is firstly, you're probably right as a first. You know that it's going to take a certain amount of time. So put that down because then it's also a matter of record. Mm. So if an email gets sent and says, I think it's going to be 16 hours, then you should say that. And then the producer will come and go, oh, well, we've only got 11. And then you have a discussion. Mm. And then more often than not, you can reach a compromise. But it has to be across the departments. It has to be a discussion that everyone's involved in. And also people need to know the reality because you're not giving people a fair hit of what they need to achieve uh, because they need to know their limitations and they need to know that they have a certain amount of time to do it. Mm. And if you think what the production has in, you know, and it's the hours that they've allotted for the amount you've got to shoot, you have to be honest and upfront. Okay. The, after that, if the producer says, which has happened on a few times, you need to make this 12 hours, then you say, okay. Um, and there's, there's different theories on this. Some people will say, here's my Excel document, you do it, mm -hmm. because this is now not my schedule. Or what I would do is I say, okay, you have my original schedule. This is your 12-hour schedule, but I'm telling you now that it's not going to work. Mm. And listen, more often than not, it's fine. But, and it's good that you, you've been very clear up front does it help for conversations to happen where certain things that may have just been bigger in people's heads actually then needs to become smaller as, a, as an entity and that can actually be a useful conversation to have? So instead of, you know, a thousand people for that, that two-second spot, you kind of go, well, actually, a 16-hour day, I need to have less people because it's less time and less... Th like, how, how, how much change can happen from a, a, a bigger schedule to a more realistic schedule? Well, at that point, it's, it's kind of <clears throat> out of your hands because, what, what, because as a first AD, you come in relatively late in the process. Some may argue too late. Um, because before you've even turned up, there's been about three, weeks of, three to four weeks of pre-production. Yeah. Budgeting, mm. pre-production meetings, conversations in a room that will go on for two hours with the agency of the client, of what has been promised. Mm. Yeah, I guess us then, as an AD turned up and going, it can't be done, actually. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's and important. at that point, the producer goes white and looks at you panicked and says, well, it has to be done because we said we could do it. Mm. And there, there's the rub, there's the tension always. Mm. And um, there's usually a way through, but that's why you have to be candid and have to be clear that... Um, you know, I mean, to take a case in point, just the other week when we first met uh, doing this podcast, I'd just finished a job. Uh, I was due for the tech recce. I got the storyboards at seven o'clock in the evening, the night before the tech recce. Mm. I could clearly see from the boards that this was going to be an 18 to 20 hour day. I mean, oh. it was just very, very, very obvious mm. to me. And my first call it was to the producer as soon as I got the boards and I said, look, this can't be done in a day. So we need to have a... In a 10 plus one. Oh, in a 24 it can't hour be done day. in a day. Yeah. Let alone 11 hours. There's puppeteering, uh, there's children, and there's a house. So shooting in a kitchen. Now, one thing you've got to remember, the smaller the environment, if you're shooting in a real house the slower it's going to go mm. because you've got a lot of people in a small space all trying to move around and set lights and have room enough for the camera. Add to that children, add to that puppeteering, um, which can take some time to get right. Um, you're, looking, you're looking at maximum four to five things that you can achieve in a day. This was eight. Um... So I said to her, I said, look, you have to be, look, I'm telling you now that this won't be done in a day. Okay, well, we can remove a couple of shots. I said, look, a couple of shots, that's not going to cut it. So as long as we go into this wrecking, knowing that, then that's fine. Mm. So we all met the next day, 
We sat around, we talked through everything, and it became very clear very quickly that we won't be able to do this in a day. So at that point, the director of photography says, I could solve this, but there needs to be a compromise. What we do is we have two units side by side in the house. Luckily, there were two directors so that they could split themselves. Okay. And we had one team shooting two commercials next door to us while we were shooting the rest of it. Mm. And we actually got it done and it was fine. But without that second unit... It without that second unit, there's no way. And actually, even if there was one director, would that have had a... Because I guess you would have... I don't think you would have been, been able to do it, mm. personally, because the director has to be across everything. Mm. Um, at which point, I don't know what happens. I think it's then up to the producer, unfortunately, mm. and I wouldn't want to be that person. Um, but you got it done. We got it done. You would have brought in maybe a second unit director yeah. at that point, mm. who's a trusted pair of hands, either within the company or that mm -hmm. somebody knows, mm -hmm. to just take care of that. Or a DP, an extra DP, that can specifically take responsibility. Um, but so, you, so the point is, you need to call it out as soon as you see it. Mm. Uh, because there's and no you point... you can fix the problem. You can fix the problem. Yeah. Be honest, fix the problem. Because while we're all keen to please people and tell people and be enthusiastic, especially when you're on your way up, mm. yes, it can be done. Be honest, because if you... If you don't think it can be done, then there's always a discussion to be had. Mm. But you must be clear up. And I guess as, as good as it is coming up being the yes, it can be done, I guess there's also something to be said about being the man or woman that's always saying, no, it can't be done. So yeah, it's I mean... That fine balance between yeah. your gut instinct yeah. or experience, however, whatever, however the... Yeah, I mean, look, you know, a part of our role as a first AD, is to be the person that says the things that people don't want to hear. Mm. Now, whether it's a director or a producer or a DP or whoever it might be, you have to be the person that's keeping this machine moving. Because once the train leaves the station, it's away, mm. right? And it's constantly moving. So you're the one that is responsible, essentially, for bringing this in on time. Um, and you have to be the voice of reason. Mm. And, and that can be difficult, and it can be you have to say the tough things. And more often than not, people aren't going to like you for it. But it's not a personal thing. Where, do you, where does an AD sit between the crew and production? They, they generally... Look, the clue's in the title. It's the assistant director. So primarily, you're there for the director, mm. right? You then become the linking point really between the director and the crew. And, and another part of this is between production and the crew. So a lot of it is actually looking after people's welfare. Mm -hmm. If someone says, I want to shoot solidly for 18 hours, no one's allowed a break. You have to say, I'm sorry, we must have a break. There are rules that guide that and financial penalties that guide that if you don't break five and a half hours after you call for lunch, then there's a penalty. If you don't break an hour, there's a penalty. If between the time that you wrap and you call the next day, there's a penalty for that. There's a, there's a minimum of um, 11 hours. So you're there to keep those things in place. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be flexible mm. because... Um, and listen, different personalities of first ADs, this approach differs. But from my mind, you're there as a team, you're there as a whole, and, it's, and, and you have to get this done together. Um, a lot of people will be very militant. A lot of first ADs will, will have an attitude where production are just out to fleece everybody and they're all idiots. Mm. Sure, there are a few, but my... God, every... every you, know. In, you know, in my experience, it's 70-30 or even 80-20, mm. you know. There are producers that are, that are hurting because they know that their money's, their budget's tight. Mm. And they're not just saying it to make a huge profit. On the other hand, there are certain people 
where profit is key and everything, and then they will squeeze people in order to get that, that money out. Mm. So, so really you're there to look after people's welfare, to aid the director and to make sure everything is safe. You know, it's a, so if the director says, I want to go one more time, but you, on your schedule you're running a little bit late, would, it, it, is it the job of the AD to be like, we can't go again? Or as the assistant to the director, we go, yeah, we go again. And it's someone else's job to say, no, you can't have any. It's a bit of both. I mean, look, you know your schedule. You know inherently, because you've been doing this thing and writing it and rewriting it and figuring it out, you've been going into the minutiae of every scene. Listen, if it's the first shot of the morning and you're over, chances are you're going to be able to make it up on the back end of the day. Mm. So you know really inherently which scenes are going to take longer than others so if a director is running over and they just can't find their magic or their feet or the child isn't performing or the actor's just not hitting it Mm. you have to be flexible and they say we need to go again and you say well i'm going to give you two more and then you must move on because xyz and you lay it out don't bullshit people say look you, if you run over on this, then you're not going to get that. Mm. Or your time is going to be squeezed there. And listen, directors always think about this. They always know how much time that they've got. Some will just will willfully ignore you, mm-hmm. uh, deliberately. Others will listen to you. But um, you know when you have to be hard and you, ha- you know when you have to say, this can't happen, you cannot go again. More often than not, you say it to the director and the producer at mm-hmm. the same time. Because then the producer has to then go and tell everybody else in the back room, whether it's the agency and client. Now, it may be it's not the director that's pushing for it. It may be the agency and client who want to do it again. At that, become, that point, becomes a financial discussion as mm-hmm. well. So there's not only there's light, the sun is going down, and the child needs to go home, or the child should have gone home five minutes ago, um, it's also a financial thing. So there's all these things in play, which can, if you let it, all bear down on you mm. as a first. But, the, 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 you know, it's that old adage, um, if you can keep your head about you when I can't... Rudyard Kipling, it's a great, great mantra for a first AD. Uh, when all the others, others are losing theirs and blaming it on you. And that's basically our life. Nice. That is our life. But keep calm, keep focused, and keep rational. And um, usually everyone will, you know, after screaming and wailing and gnashing teeth, will probably figure out that actually you're there to help. You're not there to, to hinder them. Yeah. And so, yeah, how long did it take to get in? Uh, what was your route in to the industry? Did you just suddenly go, I'm a first AD, boom, straight out of A-levels? <laughs> A, what's what, what's, what's no, the route in? God, no, 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 no. I, I was at university. I was film doing degree. a film degree. Okay. But it was more of a theory rather than a practical. So it was more academic than mm-hmm. uh, practical. Uh, so lots of film history and things like that. Um, I managed to get a work experience job at Sky Television mm-hmm. in my second year summer and so I did a summer there and then after about I don't know two weeks they I worked hard as a runner and they started to pay me for my time and I thought wow this is good and then I had to go back to uni and then when I in my third year I went back again and they paid me as a runner so that's that I started as a runner Making tea, yeah. listening to people, fetching things. And I was, you know, I was, I was, you know, quite humble, quite nervous, but wanted to make a good impression. So I just sort of kept my head down and um, made sure that I was there and available. And so from doing my second lot of essentially work experience but being paid at Sky, I then was sort of on the brink of, leaving university, so I called one of the production managers that I had been working for at Sky, Mm. and she had just started in a company that was opened by Ridley Scott's commercials producer, and it was called Godman. 
and it was a huge uh, production company uh, in Soho, and I went in there full-time. I was a full-time runner, office boy there. So, and I was there for a year, and then I, because I met, because I was taken on shoots, um, I met a lot of other first ADs and became more of a set runner, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I then decided to leave that production company and go freelance. Freelance and, as a... As a runner, okay. as a runner. So you became a freelance runner, you joined a diary service, uh, so which was recommended. I got recommended by a few first ADs. Mm-hmm. And then you start working for those people on a freelance basis and then you meet other people and then it's life you know you meet people you meet other people those you know by doing that you meet more people and then suddenly you know I think I was five or six years went by and I was working for a lot of very popular first ADs Mm. Um, and then from there on in I started to go up the ranks into third AD and then second AD um, and then that was another six years, so it was about 11 years of that, and then the rest is... And then I became a first, and then that's been 15-plus years of doing that. And did you did you get into that first job in Sky and go, oh, yeah, I love I love being a runner, or I love, being, I love Sky? Or I, I like being paid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, I'd done... It wasn't an office nine to five. Yeah, it wasn't office nine to five. I was, you know, I've been working, I think, since I was about 14 in coffee shops and restaurants and stuff like that and doing all that kind of stuff. And I was also, at the time, I used to be in a band playing drums and then that brings it with it its own sense of a kind of freelance lifestyle where nothing's ever permanent, you sort of... I go to the studio at 11 o'clock and you piss about and then you... It's not a regular job. So it kind of suited that and I was familiar with it. Plus it was... It was incredible. I, you know, I'd loved uh, movies all my life, really. And um, to see it happening, even though they were commercials, it's still people it's sort of hauling a rock up a mountain mm. And watching it roll down the hill and then hauling it up again. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a ridiculous thing that we do, but there's some magic about it and there's something incredible about watching 150 people all trying to get to the same point in whatever role that they're doing. Mm. You know, driving a van or making a sandwich or setting a light or being responsible for how the camera moves. You know, everybody is there and focused on this one thing. And that's kind of incredible. And to see it come to life and to be in a studio. I remember, I remember going to Ealing Studios for the first time and being so overwhelmed by the history mm. of it, all the Ealing comedies from the 1950s, yeah. and seeing it and feeling it in the walls was, a, was really special. Um, so was that like a lightning bolt moment for you for... ADing or for the industry or no 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 it was it was just more of a sense of excitement mm-hmm. um, I mean there was a lightning bolt moment where I uh, found myself in a situation where I was um, it had been the end of a long shooting day and they had to do one more scene and they had an actress in the black cab with a driver and so I got told to sit on, lie on the floor of an old back cab. And this, 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 this is... this driving around London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving low around London. Loader, out, just, no, no, no low yes. loader. So just completely independently. Um, and this was, you know, these these were the new brand spanking new cabs. This was an old cab with a crappy old floor. Oh, rickety thing, the dirt, the whole bit. And I was lying there and I was given a walkie-talkie and I was lying on the floor and the cab was going really fast around London. I was trying to sort of steady myself and I was rolling around on the floor. I had the first AD over the walkie-talkie shouting instructions to the actress, of which I would then repeat it, which was kind of a pointless exercise because she could probably hear it through the radio <laughs> anyway. And yeah. then suddenly it dawned on me that where, what, other industry, what other type of work or when are you else are you going to do this? I'm rolling around on the floor with this rather hot actress, I'll be honest, um, telling her what to do and 
and we're going round and round and round again for an hour or so, and I'm seeing watching the streetlights whizzing by above me, thinking this is the best job in the world. Yeah. And I recently, weirdly, I had a very similar experience when I was a first AD, this was five years ago, a bit more, where we were in Iceland, and it was a car commercial for Range Rover, and I was responsible for the whole thing. There was a helicopter. Wow. There was a precision driver. Mm. There was an actress. And I was on a satellite radio with the police to lock off two and a half miles of road. What? And the helicopter was there to film it. So the one thing you've got to remember about a helicopter, they're noisy and they're big and they're hot and they're just noisy, yeah. big things, right? <laughs> And you knew, and it's pretty real. Once you see one of these these things, and there's a cameraman hanging out the side of this thing, mm. and it's the engines are going, and the rotors going, and suddenly you've got to clear the area because there's dust and there's wind, and people get their whole heads chopped off, and they're too close. All that stuff. Yeah. This thing goes up in the air again. I'm sitting again, rolling around on the floor of this uh, Range Rover, but this time we're going 120 miles an hour down a locked-off road. Wow. And I'm relying on a satellite radio speaking to an Icelandic police force. So I'm pretty sure what I'm saying is getting through. Yeah, the translation isn't, you know, it's... Pretty sure. I mean, that's what you've got. Lock it off. That's it. Okay, it's locked off. I'm looking at the local production manager. He's nodding at me. I'm going, okay, great. And action. So we start driving down this fucking road, 120 miles an hour. And I'm looking, I'm lying on my back, and I look to my right, and the helicopter is screaming, and it's close, so close to the car you can even touch it. And I'm seeing this thing, and then it just banks over the top, over the sunroof, and goes back again. And suddenly, there's all the elements there. I'm going 120 miles an hour with a precision driver on a locked-off road with a noisy helicopter just skimming the top of this car. And I'm th- and I'm there again. It's it. like I've been taken back 15 years, yeah. and I'm going again. This is the best job in the world. Yeah. The best job in the world. So you know, so. Two lightning bolts moment, one when I was a runner, and then flash forward 15 years later, I'm doing exactly the same thing, but I'm actually in control of all of those things. And I'm responsible for safety. And we're getting the shot. And it looks beautiful, and everybody is just wetting themselves because this car looks incredible. And, you know, you're partly responsible for that. You know, partly. But it was great. (laughs) <laughs> like that's that's when the big toys come out yeah. and you're like that's yeah. that's that's the thing you know and there's there's other jobs god i mean i could carry on forever but you know i did an army job we had five chinooks we had oh, some attack helicopters i had three full units to uh, about 300 army people going through a forest we had tanks we had smoke effects we had the full bit and you're in control. You're ready for war. You're the one no. that's doing it all. And, you know, and that's great. And that's fun. And it happens. Mm. And, you know, little did I know, being this quite humble, you know, 23-year-old when I first started, that, that it could ever be like this. But it just happens, mm. you know. The more you do it, the more it happens. And that's the thing, is that... This industry isn't reserved for the people with the talent or that incredible thing that you think is intangible because you're young and you just have no idea. You go to work day to day and you do it over a number of years and you'll find yourself in that position. So it's not... It's it's a tangible thing and it can be done. Mm. And uh, that's what I didn't realise when I was younger is that I thought all of this was reserved for people far better than I was, far more you know, talented than I was. And that's not necessarily true because actually it's about hard work and you, you turn up for work and you do it and you do it and you do it and then suddenly 10, 15, 20 years has gone by and you think, God, you know, I've been there. I've, I've, I've been in those moments and that's, that's what's great. And if you're interested in film... 
or making something, then this is a great business to be in. Have you got any advice for those starting off? Have you got what would be the advice that you'd give to your younger self? Um, be more confident when you're younger. But I think if I was going to give give advice to anybody, not necessarily just myself, I would just say turn up on time or be early. Actually, be early. Mm. Be ten minutes early wherever you are. Um. Uh, but to, to myself, I would say just be a bit more confident, you know, mm-hmm. because it took me, you know, 12 years, six, seven years as a runner is a long time. But I didn't think that I was worthy enough to move on, you know. Um, there are two types of people, really. There's the blaggers and then there's the people that actually do their homework. And it's the guys that do the homework, the people that do the homework that actually probably get further you know, I always think it's astonishing to see how people can bullshit their way to certain positions. I mean, that's a skill in itself. Um, and sometimes they do very well. But my thing is, do your homework, earn your stripes, start at the bottom. Because, you you know, some people move more quickly than others for different reasons, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, be a runner do your homework, see how people operate. Mm. Because then you have the choice of whatever you want to do. You can see all the departments, you know. If you want to come out of film school and be a DP, great, fine. But just just be aware that you don't know everything. No one knows everything. Um, so all the more important to just learn and don't think that you know everything because you don't. Sam Mendes doesn't know everything, you know. He's getting there. He's getting there, for <laughs> sure. But, you know, 1917, you know, he, that was a massive learning curve for him, mm. you know. And I'm sure at times he turned up on set and they're going for the 15th take of a one-shot and it's still not working. And I defy that not to get to anyone. Mm. Of course it will. He's got a huge studio on his back. Mm. So... You're always going to be learning, whatever you do. So, you know, um, turn up on time. Be early, sorry. Be early, be keen, be humble. Um, and um, be willing to do the things that people ask you to do without sort of complaining about it, okay. I'd say. And have you got any little kind of silly or funny stories? Industry related. One story I had, I used to do a lot of live shows. So I used to do a lot of Brit Awards and Music Awards and things like that. And um, without name dropping, well, okay, I'll name drop Michael Jackson, Tina Turner. (laughs) So all those people I used to work with, and I used to be responsible basically for getting them from their dressing room to the stage because it was a live show. You've got a live broadcast schedule to hit. So you always have to be working ahead. You're always having to be get people out of their dressing room early mm-hmm. and with bands like Metallica or they don't want to get out of their dressing room and they will keep you waiting. So anyway, so it's the Brit Awards. It's Eminem's first Brit Awards. Yeah. So the first Slim Shady, and this is when he was in the mask, the Jason mask with mm-hmm. the uh, chainsaw. Mm-hmm. And... Bleach blonde hair. So what had happened is that we were all together there and we're talking about the day. And the, um, the floor manager, we're all in a group, comes up and whispers to someone and they tell her and go, okay, we've got a problem. So the idea was, and it's on YouTube, uh, there's a set, Eminem's big entrance. So the idea is it's a kind of a false entrance. So it's a big sort of house set. So the idea was is that you're looking at the set, this sort of dark music is playing. Suddenly, Eminem enters stage left and he's got a mask on and a chainsaw. He's waving a chainsaw. And then another Eminem comes out stage right, he's waving a chainsaw. And then, bam, the lights go down to reveal the real Eminem at the bottom of the stage. The real Slim Shady. The real Slim Shady. Um, So in their wisdom... Production had hired Eminem lookalikes to do the two first entrances. Mm. However, one of them 
turned out to not be all there mentally and rather strange and a bit possessed and a bit um, scary in terms of... As in, like a fanboy? A fanboy, a super fan of the kind of darker variety which you wouldn't want anywhere near multi-award-winning platinum-selling M&M. So there was a lot of whispering, a lot of, you know, eyes, brows raised and stuff. And they said, well, we've got to get rid of him, we've got to get rid of him. Who could fill in? And, right, I'm there. I've got short hair. (laughs) (laughs) And suddenly the finger comes pointing towards me. Rabbit in the headlights. You, you'll do. What? Uh Uh, Right. We're going to dye your hair. What, what? And then before I know it, suddenly I've got a talcum powder in my hair. I've got this whole thing. They're shaving my head. Right, you're on. Sorry? (laughs) Suddenly, dungarees, (laughs) face mask, the whole bit. And then suddenly, literally before I know it, I'm by the side of the stage and I've got a guy speaking to me really fast. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Right, as soon as I point to you, you walk on stage and you wave your chainsaw around. Got it? Lights go down, music goes up. I'm waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm like, I'm going to fuck this up. I'm going to fall over. The set's going to collapse. You know, I'm going to be in a nightmare anyway. So suddenly I get the the finger points of me. I run on stage. I wave my chainsaw. And, of course, the audience think you're M&M. So there I am, you know, running on stage. Love it. And the roar goes, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> waving his fucking chainsaw around. And that was my sort of five minutes of, uh, of fame, all under a face mask, so nobody knows. So, but, but you can check it out on YouTube. Yeah, but you can check it out on YouTube. I don't know which uh, year it was, I can't remember, but it was Eminem's first performance. So, as you're looking at it, look it up on YouTube, stayed right, that's me, waving my chainsaw around. Beg your pardon. Famous. <laughs> <laughs> so that famous that was AD. kind of that was kind of a, and that happens all the time. Weirdly, you know, mm. there are always solutions, and there you go. You're looking for a solution. You'll do. We're never going to see your face. Put the face mask in. Run on stage and be Eminem for thirty seconds. Okay. And I didn't really have time to sort of say no. Not that I would have, but you know, you're sort of thrust into it, yeah. and that's great. Take it. And so it's stuff like that. Which is great. Boom. Well, that brings us to kind of towards the end of the podcast. Oh, my God. What a lovely way to so end quickly. it. The M&M body double, <laughs> AD. Love this guy. Um, so have you got any kind of people or projects that you want to give a shout out to? Well, I, in a nutshell, about five years ago, I decided in myself to slightly move sideways and move into producing. So, and I set up my own production company, and it's it's a kind of service company, I guess. Um, so I take on young directors, and if they've got a job that's come from somewhere, then I will help them produce it. So that company is called Iron Age Pictures. The website is www.ironagepictures.com. And so if you want to ask me any questions, you can find me through that website. Right. Um, and it's kind of I do that plus I freelance for other people plus I'm still very much an AD so I kind of do try to do both and it keeps it keeps a good variety of work so um, Iron Age Pictures and we did just recently a couple of years ago I guess we did an album's worth of music videos for Snow Patrol so that was 12 videos back to back shooting in five different countries so that was a project that I was really proud of so um so that was great. So there you go. That's Amazing. my shout out. Yeah, big. Well, any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Uh, keep listening uh, to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, final thoughts. What can I say? Um, if if you're uh, if you're a current crew member of the film family, you're the reason I go to work. Let's put it like that, because actually it's about the people. Mm. And that's what's great about this, is that it's a collection of people all getting together to do this very ridiculous thing of making a film of some description. And actually it's about the people. And the people that we work with are great, talented, brilliant individuals 
that are there to do this thing. Obviously, we're getting paid. So, really, my final thought is this industry is made by the people um, that work in it, and that's kind of why I go to work. Um, and then the second thing is is that if you're coming up, um, be early, as I keep saying, um, and do your homework. And whether if you're a DP or a director or a runner, do your homework, have a plan. If you're going to make something, make sure you have a plan because no one else is going to do it for you. Because if you have a plan about what you're going to shoot, you'll end up getting more than you bargained for. If you don't have a plan, you'll get less. And filmmaking is all about having options when you get to an edit. So do your homework, be prepared, and then the rest will kind of figure itself out. So that's, that's my advice. Amazing. Well, thank you, Mr. Matthew Clyde. My thank you very thank much you. for coming back and doing another hour. Um, really, really do appreciate you kind of coming back and giving us your stories and, and helping out those kind of film students and media students that mm. wouldn't be able to have this time with you. So yeah. really, thank you for that. Um, I guess if any of the film family listening, do please subscribe and share the podcast on whatever platform, you, uh, platform you're listening on. Mm-hmm. Um, also, go to thetimescheduler.com, which is the website that I've built where it's the hub of everything that we're doing, all the podcasts, the videos that I'm going to make, anything like that to try and help you find out and have some questions and give you some answers of the film industry. So go there to thetimescheduler.com. Um, and until next time... That is a wrap. So that was a chat with the king or queen in the game. I give it a shout at the end so you all know the name. It's the Film Gods Podcast. The what? The Film God Podcast. This episode sponsored by RSVP. RSVP brings together two established video playback companies into one powerhouse with over 50 years of onset knowledge. The experienced and growing team are all skilled in the latest recording software with up-to-date HD video recording equipment, HD monitors and HD wireless packages. RSVP understand that the requirements for every shoot are different. So for a tailor quote, get in touch at info at rsvp.london.